Our Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And, sin- and the one who will inherit my estate is Elziah of das- Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your own heir, or blood your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So your offspring shall be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they were enslaved and mistreated there. They will be. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram and said, To your descendants, I give you this land, to the wadi of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kezanites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Oh, there we are. Morning, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, if you're new with us this morning, my name is Matt. I'm one of the ministers here at Dabdo Anglican, so please welcome. Something about me that you may or may not know, Lisa definitely knows this about me, is I have this curiosity. There's a puzzle that I need to solve. You sort of can't stop me from trying to solve it. I particularly like to work out why on earth do we do the things we do? Particularly those things that we've been doing for so long, we've just forgotten why we do it in the first place. Something I think about, particularly two points of every year, is why on earth do we do daylight savings? Is it something we just kind of do? It's in the rhythms of our lives. Yeah, maybe we question it from time to time, but we just let it happen. It rolls on. And it seems to do its job. It extends our daylight hours. We do enjoy that over summer. 
So there seems to be a purpose that seems to achieve its goal. However, if we don't know why we did it in the first place, how can we be so sure that it's actually achieving the goal that it's supposed to? How can we be sure that this thing that we do is actually valuable? So I did some digging, and there's some reasons why most people seem to think that we do daylight savings. The first reason you hear is like, it is brilliant for the farmers. The farmers want it. They love it. It's so helpful to have that extra hour of daylight. The only problem is, you don't, I talk to most farmers and they hate it. It's actually really counterproductive, particularly if you are a dairy farmer. It makes everything go skew-if. There's the other idea that maybe it's going to help us be more healthier and happier because after all, we're getting more vitamin D at the end of the day. We're out in the sun, we're enjoying that. Surely that's got to be a good thing. But there's really no evidence to suggest that's the case, that actually doing daylight savings actually increases our health and well-being at all. There's the other argument that maybe it helps us conserve energy. But realistically, the data shows there's only, if it does, minimal difference for this big upheaval that we have every year. The other argument as well is that perhaps it helps business because you can be more productive with daylight times. And it's nice to come home when there's still daylight out there. But again, there's not really much behind that at all. It turns out that the whole reason why we even got the idea of daylight savings in the first place wasn't any of these reasons. It actually began in 1885 by a British etymologist named George Hudson who really enjoyed studying insects in New Zealand. And he thought, why don't we extend the daylight so I can have more time to study these insects? This is actually how the idea became, it became about. He went to the Palm of New Zealand. They quite rightly rejected his idea to try and have all of the society to be changed just so he can study bugs. But, turns out, his idea started, even though it was rejected back then, and continued on, and is actually why we have daylight savings today. There's more steps along the way, but he's the original source of why we have it. See, it's important to keep track of the things we do because when we forget why we do things, then too often the purpose behind the things that we do kind of shifts. We don't notice either that the shift has happened, particularly if we have lost sight of why we do things in the first place. It's kind of like a, pot, it's kind of like a frog sitting in a pot of boiling water, slowly warming and not realising what is happening. Now, this series that we're going to, so each, each service is doing its own series, and this being a, a service that is a little bit focused towards families, but sort of be looking at families. So any time you talk about families, of course, immediately you're walking on eggshells. So I want to run through a few things that this is and the few things that this isn't. What this series isn't to say that if you... You are less than a Christian if you find yourself without children, without that perfect nuclear family situation. It is definitely not saying that. It's also not saying there's something extra special about the nuclear family, that somehow this is some holy arrangement that makes you better. And to be a part of a nuclear family is the end goal. And that's we put all of our effort into it. It's not that. But what it is, is simply to show that something has actually happened in our culture. There has been a shift that has happened, and I don't even know if we've quite noticed it. And if we haven't noticed it, 
then we run the danger as, as our culture shifts that we can shift with it as well and not even notice it. Sarah and I, as a part of the families ministry here at, at Dapto Anglican, we see that the difference in Christian families is simply that Jesus makes the difference. As part of family ministry, we want to build up resilient families in Jesus. And we want them to raise resilient disciples of Jesus and then share in an intentional community that is shaped by Jesus as well. So this series is a way of doing that. So what has shifted? What has changed so much? Well, Lixia, uh, who has done a lot of research in family dynamics in Australia, in a, in a newspaper article, her data has come out that actually households, that uh, one-person households in Australia are fast catching the nuclear family dynamic. In 1996, three in ten households were couples with dependent children. Uh, one in five were, people, were households that had one single member. So it was about 22.5% of the population. However, the big shift happens, we can see in 2021, where couples with, de- with dependent uh, children are now comprised of 25.6% of households, which is now almost on par with single person households. Single person households are now at 25.1%. The other big shift that has happened is couple-only households have risen. In 1996, it was one in four. But now it's risen to 27.6%. The shift between what it was in 1996 and 22.5%, there are not the couples with dependent children, to now being so similar to each other. A significant shift has happened. Alexia says that This may seem like small percentage shifts, but the trend line is clear. They represent a wide range of demographic change given there are about 9.25 million households in Australia. This sort of brings some clarity to what she's talking about. She does show that there's part of this is the fact that we have an aging population, so it's only natural to see couples without children because of that. And also there is a fertility rate that has had a dramatic effect on the story of Australia and how things have shifted. You know, fertility rate being so important because it is a driver of the economy, she says. There are greater numbers now of young couples with no children. And she sees that the reasons for this is based on the cost of living, the cost of housing and the cost of childcare as well as job security and the concept of job advancement as well. The changing nature of the typical Australian household has flown on, flown on consequences across many sectors of the economy. Another article that came out recently in the Herald, where Victoria... Uh, it says that the cost, of, the cost of adding one more, another, one more, another human to your family is significant. From pregnancy, birth, uh, actually raising the child and all the costs in between. 
She says that historically, having children was just a part of the journey through life. It was the assumption that was just placed on anyone that was in any form of a committed relationship. But now, things are just far more expensive. And it makes sense that so many people are choosing to remain, as now the, as now the title's been given to them, dinks. The term dink stands for double income, no kids. Uh, as opposed to my wife and I, who are on the way to being single income, countless kids. So sick. <laughs> and she writes in her article that between 2016 and 2021, the rise in double income, no kids, so couple only families, has risen by 644,343. The Australian Institute of Family Studies predicts that by 2030, childless families will outnumber those with children for the first time. There's a shift happening. Something has changed. She, sees, she writes about some challenges that she sees of why this might be the case. She has one thing that's called the motherhood penalty, as she calls it. So she, she highlights that the average 25-year-old new mother will earn $2 million less in their lifetime compared to her male partner. But the dinks revel in this choice in financial freedom. This dual income allows them to curate a lifestyle and focus on their own goals, is what she says. The subtle financial save, the substantial sorry, financial savings afforded by not having children become a part become apparent very quickly. The emergence of dinks underscores the deep importance for a broader conversation about financial inclusivity, equality, and genuine cost of, opt of opting for parenthood in modern society. A flourishing Australia is one where every individual has an opportunity to lead a fulfilling life without, compromise, without compromising their financial well-being. Just think about that. There's a bit of a trend that we're seeing, a bit of the reason why these things might be happening. But in both articles, particularly in, in this recent one, there are some assumptions that are happening here. There are assumptions about what a family is, what it does, what its purpose, how it fits in society. It seems to have the assumption that a family is merely a group of individuals who are chasing after their own individual goals, rather than working as a team together for the same goal. This other assumption is life is about success. It is about success financially, about your position in life. And this is something that having a family might hinder. Rather than a family being a place of fulfillment, about being a part of a goal that is actually greater than the family, something that is greater than any one lifetime or individual. I think very apparently in what these articles are showing is financial security seems to be really underscoring this shift. It seems to be the most thing needed to feel secure in our society. So rather than security resting in an eternal promise or a greater value, security seems more and more resting in where you are financially and it is what is driving a lot of the decisions. 
I went to a wedding. I haven't been to a wedding for a while. I went to a wedding a few months ago. It was for a family member. And my family member is not a Christian. And I don't think, when I was reflecting on the way there, whether I've actually really been to many non-Christian weddings. And I was really interested. What are they going to say a part of this service? What is, how are they going to frame this concept of getting married? Why are they doing it? What is important to them? And how are they shaping their lives based on this event? And to me, listening to the words that were said and how things were framed, it became very apparent that marriage today seems very much like, well, this person's a great person and the other person's a great person. And isn't it great that these two great people have come together so they can do great things together? There's no real huge purpose behind it. It's two individuals who people think are great, come together and to try and do great things for themselves and for each other. We see the shift culturally. We see it in this article. We see it in the things that we go to and hear on TV and in the media as well. But underscoring it, there's always a thought behind it. At the base of everything, there is some sort of thought that has just trickled through and it can take years and years and decades, but you can trace back. Not exclusively, but a lot of what we're seeing is the product of German-born philosopher, economic, economic and political theorist, historian, and revolutionary sociologist Karl Marx. He wrote very greatly on the abolishment of the family. He saw that this is what the bourgeoisie used to keep people down and to hinder any form of revolution or social change. He also saw that the family and marriage was purely, for the bourgeoisie, a money relationship. And you can kind of see evidence for it. It's not out of nowhere. In the royal families, the way king, princes and princesses marry to keep those bonds and keep financials up, you can see that in the higher classes. This then continues on to Herbert Marcuse, the second person we have there, who was an American, German-American philosopher and social critic and political theorist. He's the father of critical theory and was a writer that led to a lot of the stuff that came through with the sexual revolution. Okay, I found this on the web. <laughs> Thank you, sir. If you could keep preaching for me, that would be amazing. One second. Okay. Um, the sexual revolution and he very much argued that actually humanity itself needed to be to order, in order to be fulfilled needed to engage with its sexual side the sexual pleasure and fulfilment was the goal of humanity and he said the body in its, entire, entirely, in its entirety would become a thing to be enjoyed an instrument of pleasure this change in the value and scope of the libido relationship would lead to a disintegration of the institution in which the private interpersonal relations have been organized particularly the monogamatic and and patriarchal family a more recent article i found by Lily Sanchez, which I don't have a picture for, she writes more recently, what, the, what is the family but a set of norms around gender, sexuality, household labour and the pooling of resources for economic survival? We only need the family because our society is organised in such a way as to make the atomizing family the main unit responsible for our survival in an increasingly unequal society with limited social safety nets. 
get marriage and the nuclear family are but one way we human beings can organise ourselves. They are not inevitable, universal or timeless, despite the cultural and political signals we get that suggest they are. What lies behind a lot of our trends, and it's not the, meant by most people who are going along with the shift, but it's actually the destruction of the family, the disintegration of the family units. And Karl Marx saw this, the family is so valuable, which is why it needed to be abolished, is because how quickly and easily the values of a family can be transported from one to another through generations. If this utopian future is to be obtained... The tyranny of the traditional family must end, as he says. So if this is true, then what are we left with? If the family is anything, then really it's nothing. If parental roles can be whatever, then they are confused and they don't seem to be connected to a future goal. Children are no longer encouraged or when you do have children, those children are encouraged to escape the family in order to find their true values instead of being held back by the values of their family. Families these days in this shift are losing their role, their purpose and their value within our society. That is what is happening in this shift. That is the shift culturally, but fortunately for us, the Bible paints a very different picture of what the family is, its purpose, and where it fits in. It is incredibly significant because from the beginning, God has used families to bring about his purpose. He has encouraged families to pass on their values that he has given to them, on who he is and what he has done for them. Remember, Adam... The very first man was supposed to pass on to Eve what God had said to him. From Genesis to Matthew, we see the Bible painting pictures of generations and listing different names and who is related to who as it goes down the line. Scripture itself records the family tree that belongs to God. God began with the family, one family. And just like Jesus says about the, about the kingdom of God, it's like beginning with a mustard seed that grows and grows and grows. Something so small grows into something so big. It begins with Adam and Eve. It is then restarted with Noah and his family after the flood. For Abraham through to David, David through to Jesus. It all begins in the context of a family and all is resolved in the context of a family. Families aren't the point in themselves, but they are the connection to a story that is greater than one person, than one family or group. Through families, as you can see, we're connected to God's story, about he, how he is bringing salvation and restoration to all of creation as he saves people and creation from themselves. God, in families, sets people apart. God makes these families 
holy as he brings about his plans and purposes. In our passage today, Genesis records a family tree and it begins with a line of Noah but extends back to Adam and Eve. From Noah's son Shem and then Shem's son Terah, the, the Bible records Terah's offspring as Abram who will become Abraham, as well as his siblings and their families connected to including their wives. Sarai, who will become Sarah, in chapter 11 is noted to be childless and that she would not be able to conceive. Both Sarai and Abram set out for Canaan together on God's instructions. But then God calls to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis and he makes Abraham a promise that he will make from him a great nation that God will give him a great name. And he will bless those that bless him. And he'll curse those who curse him. And all peoples will be blessed from him. Abraham then travels through Egypt, and there's an incident between Abram, the Pharaoh, and his wife Sarai, which is really interesting. Then his nephew Lot goes off, and Abraham goes to rescue him from the four kings, which God then aids Abraham in order to deliver and conquers these kings. And where we find Abraham or Abram now is he is now exhausted, knocked around after battle, and then he receives a vision from the Lord. The vision begins with not to be afraid. There's an encouragement there from God to Abram. It is clear that God is Abram's protector and he is well Abram's reward. Abraham questions what God has been saying, seeing as his wife Sarai still hasn't got any children. If this promise is going to be there, then when is it going to happen? It doesn't seem likely at this point. He's questioning, but there is still an element of trust behind there. He expects that if Sarai is not going to be blessed with a child, then it's going to have to go down and pass on to his servant. But then God says that, no, you will have one of your own flesh, despite the challenges and age that Sarai has, and your descendants still will be as numerous as the stars. And your offspring will be a blessing to others. So as we think about the picture that the Bible actually paints of families, and the promises that are there, and we think back to the articles and the recent trends, I wonder if we sometimes think of how actually blessed we are by our family lines. What we're a part of that is bigger than ourselves. Do we sometimes think of our family lines as optional? Do they lose out against things like personal success, personal apparition, or that urge to have that you only live once attitude towards life. I feel like we have lost the sense of being a part of something greater and beyond us in our recent times. We've lost that, con that connection with what we have seen, which is God's blessing through family lines. And that blessing that we pass on down the line from us. We have lost that sense 
of how we bless others. Something that started so small has grown into who is sitting here today. I wonder what's your family story? When did God and your family story connect with each other? Who was the first person in your family to be saved by Jesus? For Lisa, it started with her parents. Uh, They became Christians in their 30s. Uh, None of their family are Christians, but they became Christians, and now Lisa and her brother are Christians. For myself, it begins with me. My family are not Christians. I was the first of my family to be saved by Jesus. But Lisa and I, through that connection, will be raising our children to be Christians in the same faith we have. We are passing on that blessing down the line. You can start with a mustard seed, but it grows. And as those values of who God is and his wisdom pass through, that can be a blessing and will be a blessing to others. The point here isn't to say that you must be married and have children to be a proper Christian. The point here is to show that there is a purpose and a value behind families, their connection to something greater, that we have actually lost the sense of where they fit in and how they play the significant role in God's plan for salvation. I think the other thing we've lost a sense of is actually the difference that Jesus makes in families. We look at verse 6. Abraham, Abraham believed that the Lord believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham has faith in God and therefore he is made righteous before God. The family unit who has faith in Jesus is made righteous. It is set apart by Jesus. Jesus makes the difference in our families. Just like Abraham, we have faith in God, which means we are righteous before God. There is something different about our families. We're on a different path to other families. We have different priorities to other families, and we share a different hope to other families. The difference is Jesus. We live a life now with nothing really to prove. We don't have to keep up with the Joneses because we have everything we need in Jesus and we are made righteous before God. We don't need to live our best life now because we have eternity to look forward to. We can live for others because we know we have everything that we need. I used to work in a production house in Crow's Nest and there was a other graphic designer there and she one day ran up the back of a van while she was driving she didn't have much money. She was a bit scared of how much this was going to cost. As she was working through the details, talking to them, she eventually one day was so happy about the situation. She said, you know what, Matt? I've learned that if you're going to run up the back of somebody on the road, make sure they're a Christian because they're just so lovely. I mean, they've been great. They've just been, like, they actually ask how I'm going. There is just something different about how we as a family can respond to the world around us. We don't have those same urges and urgencies of the world around us. We can show the difference that Jesus makes. Another thing this passage highlights is that we are a part of a plan. Our families are a part of a dynasty that began with 
Adam and Eve, and as it continued on, and we can see it expanding more in the promises to Abraham. And it shows that what it may feel like to us, that families may have lost their sense of being a part of that. And maybe we can be tricked into having those same urgencies and the apathy that is in there when it comes to family relationships now in our world. In verses 12 to 16. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that, your four, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with, with, great, with great possessions. You, however, will go on to your ancestors in peace and will be buried at a good old age." In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You can see that in the promise here in this passage, there's the expectation that God has for Abraham's family. is like, all this stuff is going to play out. I am promising generations that will continue. I already know what's going to happen, and I'm going to help you with certain parts. I'm going to bring about my plans and purposes for saving this, this universe through your family it starts with a mustard seed but it grows into something beautiful it grows into something powerful something that is able to bless others and I think we need to do a few things coming from this as we reflect on what the articles say and what the bible says is first I think we need to look at our families and each other's families as not just our own legacy something that we're passing on for ourselves, but actually God's legacy. And we need to remember that every one member of a family is connected to a greater dynasty that is connected to God. And we should praise God for that. Each member is a demonstration of his amazing power and mercy. And of course, with what we have, that inheritance that we have, that blessing that has been either starts with us or has been continued through us, bless others. There are many things that we do that we have lost track of why we do them in the first place. But it is important to keep track of what we are doing because otherwise we will lose our priorities in the process. We will lose the importance and the purpose, and we can see that in God's plan, the genealogy, his legacy, his energy is so important to bringing about the salvation of this world. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing importance of families, that you started with one couple and have brought about your plan of salvation through your son, who was born to us as a baby into a family line. We pray that as we reflect on what you do as a part of families, that we will see the urgency of trying to pass on that blessing, that we'll remember the importance of it all, and we will live differently because of it. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.